Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited about today's guest, Judd Apatow. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about what happened on Tuesday. Liz Cheney, of course, by now, everybody uh, who isn't living under a rock, knows that she lost her bid to keep her congressional seat in Wyoming. The only congressional seat in Wyoming, by the way. She lost by, I think, a margin of more than two to one, and it was like the worst defeat in 60 years in, in Wyoming. Not good. But I say that not because that's a, an indictment of her and her candidacy and her character, but it says more about the people of Wyoming. I, I really thought that people were going to go in that voting booth. Women were going to go in that voting booth and, and do the right thing. And boy, was I wrong. But we haven't heard the last from Liz, and uh, I remain a big supporter, given her heroism and patriotism in standing up to Trump and Trumpism. So kudos to her. I think Tuesday was not a defeat for Liz Cheney. It was actually a victory for Liz Cheney and a victory for America in many ways. Other than that, um, I think it was kind of a quiet week, wasn't it, Maddie? Yeah, there's a little bit going on. Alan Weisselberg, Trump's uh, chief financial officer, pleaded guilty to tax fraud. Giuliani was in Atlanta testifying in front of a grand jury as a target of the criminal investigation. And uh, Trump's dream team of lawyers, who include a parking garage attorney, said nothing in court and let the media's attorneys make the case for releasing the affidavit to public in the, uh, public interest. And then finally, a side note, uh, Dwight Garner, uh, New York Times book review critic, I think should get hazard pay for having to have read Jared Kushner's memoir that was 492 pages long. And I think you, you looked at that review too and have some comments. Yeah. I mean, this is going to go down in history, I think, as the best, worst book review ever. He skewers Kushner on so many levels. If you hate Jared Kushner as much as I do, you've got to read this review. It'll make your life. But just want to point out a couple of things. Breaking history is an earnest and soulless Kushner looks like a mannequin, and he writes like one, and peculiarly selective appraisal of Donald Trump, blah, 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 blah. And then the best thing ever, the best quote ever. And this is a quote, direct quote. <laughs> Reading this book reminded me of watching a cat lick a dog's eye goo. <laughs> Excellent, because he worked a cat in, which is always good. Oh, my God. You, you can't get a better line than that ever. Find me. I dare you. Write me. Call me. Call us with a better book review line than that. Okay, so without further ado, I want to get into this interview with Judd Apatow because it's pretty awesome. Judd has directed, produced, and written many of the biggest comedy films and hit TV shows of the last two decades. His most recent feature is the Netflix comedy The Bubble, and he also co-directed and produced HBO's Emmy-nominated two-part documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. It's truly an incredible film, and you should watch that if you haven't seen it. He's currently producing the romantic comedy Bros for Universal, starring and written by Billy Eichner, and is producing a semi-autobiographical comedy about writers and comedians Kenny and Keith Lucas and their lives as identical twins in Newark, New Jersey, in which they will co-star and co-write. Judd's films are truly iconic, and that's an understatement. I mean, he's directed The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, This Is 40, Trainwreck, and The King of Staten Island. He's produced the Academy Award-nominated The Big Sick and Bridesmaids, as well as Superbad, Pineapple Express, Anchorman, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and Popstar. And uh, a lot of you are probably big fans of his TV work, which includes HBO's Crashing, Netflix's Love, the multi-award-winning series Girls, Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, The Ben Stiller Show, 
and The Larry Sanders Show. And his next Netflix comedy special, Judd Apatow, The Return, put him back on a stand-up stage after a 25-year hiatus. Judd's also recently authored the New York Times bestseller, Sicker in the Head, an all-new collection of honest, hilarious, and enlightening conversations with some of the most exciting names in comedy, a follow-up to his New York Times bestseller, Sick in the Head. Welcome into the back room, Judd. Good to be here. A real honor to have you here. I'm a big fan and uh, looking forward to our chat. Figured we'd talk a little bit about your career and you and, and movie making and maybe a little bit of uh, politics, which I know is a, an important subject to you. Uh, we're not going to get too personal, just the usual questions about uh, like your sex life and which one of your kids is exactly. your, which one of your kids is your, your favorite, that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and before we begin, I just want to say, um, if you ever want to make this is sixty three, I'm your guy. I'm single. I'm fifty four got... right now. <laughs> so I uh, way different than sixty three. Uh, trust I, me. <laughs> those oh, few no. years, those few years make same. a whole lot of difference. Well, I'm single. I've got man boobs. I'm breaking out in liver spots. I've got the bladder control of a two year old. And, uh, you know, if you throw in the occasional explosive diarrhea, I think this could be a really hot rom-com. So if you're, whenever you're ready, I'm, I'm ready. There's a golden girl's market waiting <laughs> for this movie. So I, I want to I say a huge congrats on the HBO doc, George Carlin's American Dream, which I watched this week. And uh, indulge me while I gush for a, a minute or two. Um, this film really resonated with me on multiple levels. The, the obvious first one was that I'm, I'm like millions of people. I'm a huge George Carlin fan. Uh, I grew up in the 70s as a teenager. So Carlin and Pryor and Freddie Prinze, all those guys, that era was my comedy era. I still have all my albums from then. I also, it really touched a nerve with me in terms of relationships. Uh, in particular, I lost a, a spouse who I considered uh, a soulmate. So, and, and I thought that George and Brenda really had this kind of really complicated, albeit really heartwarming kind of relationship. They had a real deep, deep love, uh, which I had experienced. And so that I really appreciated the film in that respect. And also, recently, having made a film, I made a documentary about my late wife, Adrienne Shelley. I appreciated how you wove together all the themes of that film from you know bringing George back to life, making people love him, fall in love with him, and appreciate who he was, and, and then mourn his loss and the genius of, of that loss. And uh, what it does to a family to lose somebody like that, and how they moved on with their life. You know, just it spoke to me on so many levels, but it was really just a beautiful film and it was haunting and revealing and all the things that I think a good film and especially like a, a good documentary is supposed to do. I, I think at the end, like when you juxtaposed his monologue with the now, you know, the, the clips of Trump and Flynn and Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Bush, Iraq, George Floyd, police brutality, Kaepernick, the, the J6 insurrection. I thought that was really, really a, a bit of great directing and, and filmmaking. So I, I congratulate you. I think it's an incredible film. My first question is, uh, with all the comedic geniuses you knew or were inspired by and uh, have known or worked with, why Carlin? Why make a film about Carlin? Uh, well, they asked me to. <laughs> I think it's the main, there you go. <laughs> main reason is I got a call one day and they said, would you ever be interested in making a documentary about George Carlin? And I thought about it and you know, realized, you know, when I was a kid, we had Lenny Bruce records. 
my parents were in Sandy Bruce for some reason. We had the Bill Cosby records and we had the George Carlin records. Uh, those were the three people we listened to. Did you have Red Foxes? You got to wash your ass. I wish. I wish I had that. I can sell you my I copy. Didn't. <laughs> my grandfather used to put out these records by this guy named Dickie Goodman. And Dickie Goodman used to do these records where he would pretend to be interviewing someone like the president, but all the answers were one line clips from songs. <laughs> Uh, you know, so like Mr. Jaws, how did it feel when you bit that lady? Oh, I remember Louis, this guy. Louis, Louis, Louis. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. There was a whole bunch of those, and there's one filthy one that was called Screwy TV that I <laughs> found in the house. It was filthy. I couldn't even believe it. Uh, but George Carlin, I think, was the one that I would listen to secretly in my room, and I think that he you know, would talk about things that people didn't talk about that I understood. I didn't understand what Lenny Bruce was talking about as a young 10 year old, but George Carlin talked about school. He talked about being a class clown. Mm -hmm. He liked to break down words and dirty words. He talked about religion. And I think as a little kid, I, I, I would think, Oh, this is how I'm supposed to look at the world. He, he, he definitely was for questioning authority. He used to say parents never teach their kids to question authority because they are authority. So you wouldn't tell your kids to question everything, right. but you should. And so I realized that I had that connection to it. And I also had the connection of a house, growing up in a house with a lot of conflict and not that kind of conflict. I didn't have addiction in my house, but certainly it was chaos and people not getting along and being a kid in the middle and not really knowing how to respond to it. So I, I definitely felt for Kelly to be in the middle of her parents, you know, fighting a cocaine addiction and alcohol addiction and just being unhappy. You know, it's hard to see your, your parents struggle like that. So all of those things are, you know, I related to, but I usually do things for the emotional reason. I'm interested in the emotional journey first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Did you know him? Did you meet him? I interviewed him when I was 21 or 22 for Canadian television, and it was the only interview I couldn't find. That was literally the only interview I couldn't find, but I'm sure it was a terrible interview. I wasn't that smart, and I found much better interviews. People like Kevin Smith and Jon Stewart, uh, Judy Gold. There were so many people, Chris Rock, who interviewed him. And then he did 23 hours of conversations with Tony Hendra, who was working with him on an autobiography. So that was really the thing that made the documentary possible, mm -hmm. that we found this holy grail of conversations because in public life, he was very performative. If he was doing an interview, he almost spoke like a DJ, and he, he he played it close to the vest. He didn't talk about his private life. But in these chats for his autobiography, you really heard sure. how he feels, how he talks, how he communicates. Because in his act, he never mentioned that he was married. He never right. mentioned I, You know, it's funny. It, I, I was going to say that, you know, in watching this documentary, which, was, again, was the, the one of the main purposes of me making Adrian – was to have people know him. And I've been following his career. I've been a huge fan. I used to recite his routines. But I never knew he was married. 
I never even thought that if he was, that he was like this romantic guy who wrote these love notes, all these cutesy little like teenage things. Like I learned so much yeah. about him from that film. And so I wanted to ask, one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about why Carlin is because in the absence of, of your answer, which isn't, oh my God, he was like my hero, the greatest comedian that ever lived. Of course, this is my life project to make this film about Carlin. It sounds like on some level, you probably went on the same kind of journey people like me have gone on in watching the film. And so like, what are the things you really were shocked by and learned as you made the film, just from making it? I w was surprised uh, <laughs> that uh, there was this material available that really colored in his life. My biggest concern was I wouldn't have the, the, me the media to show what he was like. That's what you wonder. Does it exist? Right. I know he's a cocaine addict. <laughs> How do I show that? And then someone's like, oh, he used to love to sit and record himself talking and singing and ranting while on cocaine. Wow. And it's just a moment. We don't indulge it for too long, but it really paints a picture of the torture of that and what it felt like to be him and what he was doing alone in rooms and he, and not doing it for a year or two. I mean, it was a long time that, that he, he struggled with that. And these, these interviews for the autobiography, uh, you, you wonder if you can get it across. Um, I mean, the movie that I made about Gary Shandling was different because I was in his life and I had videotaped him and I, I knew what was available and there mm -hmm. were these diaries and I was able to get his, his phone and his computer and find the videos. And I knew friends who had shot videos of him and I knew what he was like. So I knew what to look for to try to capture it. I can't imagine uh, making a documentary like the one that you made, which I think is a brilliant documentary. I think it, it, it's very moving and deeply personal. And I, it's a beautiful gift to the world that you made it. I really feel like these documentaries are an opportunity to introduce people to the world and they become the document of their lives in a way. Right. It, it's, a, it's a sacred thing to make them. People in the future will start there. They'll watch your documentary before they watch Waitress. Mm. They'll, they'll, they'll want to hunt everything down. And I felt that way about George Carlin and Gary Shandling. No one will know who Gary Shandling is in 50 years, but right. they might watch the documentary and then watch the Larry Sanders show and then watch some of the stand-up. And the same for, for George Carlin. HBO put up five of his specials on HBO Max. So I thought, oh, people can watch the work. Sure. That's what you also want. You You're want right. people to go to back and discover who this person was and then fall in love with them all over again as as an artist. And and yeah, that's that was certainly one of my goals. And you know, Carlin comes through in the archival that you had, he comes through so clearly in terms of the range of of what makes him complicated, you know. I, I was fascinated. He he's so he was so prescient like that 1992 a New York show, I think it was, that he did, where he's talking about abortion and right to uh, pro-life and, and viruses. It's like, it was literally as if he had a window into 2022, because you could have played that, he could have performed that set tonight, and it would yeah. be relevant and funny and biting. And I guess that's really what the kind of material that set him apart from so many other comics 
who just do kind of like standard setup punchline setup punchline and and don't really get into you know like Seinfeld as genius as he is stays away from the controversial like he's not going to try to piss anybody off and yet he's still an amazing comedian an amazing genius but Carlin and, and you see that certainly in your film and through his career more of him more of that righteous indignation came out towards the end almost to the point where like Colbert said like and I know I, I agreed with Colbert that it kind of got a little too dark and too unfunny at the end. And it was almost hard to watch him. But the film really does paint a really broad uh, picture of, of who he was. And you're, you're lucky that you found that treasure trove of archival because that, I think, uh, as a spine of the film, it just made it so incredibly important and relevant to, as to who he was as a person. Well, he liked to look at the big picture. You know, he, he didn't have a ton of material that was about something that happened in the news that day. He liked to look at the, the systems. You know, how does it work with the media being controlled by big financial interests? How does it work for big pharma to tell you, you can't take this drug, but you will sell you this one? And that's why it holds up, because it's all about larger truths, larger ideas. And, and a lot of it is a warning. He didn't really have answers. He, you know, he did feel like people need to wake up. And, and we found these notes and they said, you know, his, his purpose is to entertain and to let you know I've been thinking. That's what, what he said. And so he didn't think people would change their minds as a result of his material. But he, he definitely was someone who believed that in order to be funny, you had to go all the way. And I think we found a note somewhere that said, when I completely don't care is when I get the funniest. Mm. So at a certain point, he decided I have to go to 10. If I'm hedging because I'm worried about your feelings, I can't be crazy funny. And he definitely had some bits that were misfires. <laughs> I mean, there's routines which are not good where his point is wrong. But he was going for it and letting you know what he was what he was thinking. And sadly, we see the result of people not heeding any of those warnings, which is the environment is terrible. And our election system is a mess and we're polarized and women have, have lost their right to control their own bodies in a lot of places. And it, it's somewhat tragic because people thought he was too dark. And if you look at it now, you might go, maybe not dark enough. It certainly didn't wake people up. It wasn't about so much the darkness of the material. It was just about coming through the lens of comedy. And as you know, in comedy, there's setup and there's punchlines. Some people have like a longer setup or multiple punchlines, which is great. And I found watching him towards the end of his career that the setups got longer and darker and angrier. Yes. And the punchlines kind of became few. So it was just kind of like yeah, people like him there just standing speeches. there. It was like a speech yeah. about what's yeah. fucked up in this world, and it's like, okay, I could get that from the New York Times. I don't need that from a stand-up. Like I go to a stand-up to to forget about that shit, right? And so, I as someone who grew up with him and loved his work, it was really difficult for me back then to sort of get to that point where it's like, eh, I can't watch him now. 
And I, I and and I revisited all of that in your film, and I had forgotten how I used to just scream at the TV, "Stop fucking preaching!" and just give us more like shit, piss, yeah. fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, like all the <laughs> all the stuff we grew up with and loved, and and so. But that's what made him complicated. Yes, it's it's it is interesting because in those specials, he would always have twenty minutes of fart jokes and <laughs> really silly wordplay, and and you could tell he was doing all that to buy that ten minutes to say this thing he wanted to say. And uh, I went back and watched a lot of it and I had a, a different reaction. I kind of thought it was funnier than I thought back then, that it was a little jokier and maybe the world has gotten so dark that it doesn't seem as speechifying mm -hmm. as it felt at the time. But yes, there's definitely routines where he's just telling you something about how the world works and, you know, they don't care about you. And, you know, he has this run about politics and our elected officials. And, you know, he says, uh, garbage in, garbage out. You know, we get the people that we that we elect. You know, we're responsible for our terrible government. But there's not a punchline in it. Right. You know, saying garbage in, garbage out isn't really a punchline. No. And there, there was a fair amount of that at times. I mean, I, back in the day, I did a little bit of, of stand-up, and uh, it wasn't terribly successful, as you can probably gather from me sitting here <laughs> talking to you right now on the podcast. But I did understand that the punchline is really what everyone's coming for. Like, that's what they're coming for. You can give it to them with a long setup. You can tell stories like Richard Pryor and deliver it in a different kind of way. You can just be, you know, take my wife, please. You can, it comes in all shapes and sizes. Absent of a punchline, you've got to really have some kind of like cultish control over people for them to like really want to sit and listen to you in a comedy club or, you know, in a, in a film or whatever. Yes. How has comedy, in your opinion, the comedy business or the stand-up comedy business changed over the years in a sense of like, could some of these comedians, Lenny Bruce, Pryor, and Carlin, and could they do that material today? Can you be? I remember that turning point with Kramer from what's his Michael uh, Michael Richard. Yeah, yeah. When that kind of first happened, and like just comedians can't say the shit they used to say, can they? In today's climate, I, I, yeah, I think some of the rules are are different. Everybody has their own take on it. I, I, I'm generally of the mind that part of a comedian's job is to figure out how to get your ideas communicated. And in every generation, there's a minefield of you can't say this, you can't say that. And, and you're trying to slip things through. There is a polarized audience for comedy in the same way there is in the country. And that didn't really exist before. I think mm -hmm. George Carlin performed for people on both sides of the aisle when he was around. I don't think it was a purely liberal or conservative crowd that came to see him. But I, I think comedy is healthier than ever in a lot of ways. It's much more personal. People have podcasts and they tour a new hour every other year and it's very intimate. We get to know comedians really well. In the old days, you'd see someone set, you'd watch a Robert Klein special on HBO, and that was it. Maybe you saw him on the Mike Douglas show or the Tonight Show. It's not like now where some of the, you know, the great comedians like Tom Segura has a podcast uh, or multiple podcasts and you're getting all this other content from them and much more insight into their lives and their feelings. And so the relationships are much deeper. And I think that 
that's something that's very good. At the same time, we don't really have someone that's replaced George Carlin. There's a lot of great political comedy on the talk shows. But when things happen in the news, we tend to go back to Carlin to see what he thought. Right. We don't have other people's routines going around uh, in the same way uh, as him, which I find pretty fascinating that there are so many comedians. Why would we go back to George Carlin? Well, because the bits are better. They're just better. And more me- more meaningful. But also, in a way, just so much funnier. But this stuff that I think can't be done today, like Richard Pryor's stuttering Chinese waiter. Right? Can you do that today? You can't do that today. My daughter would tell you you can't do that today. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the world of uh, goofing on each other for our differences has uh, turned into a situation where people are offended by uh, us pointing those things out. And I'm of two minds of it. I don't really have a strong opinion. I certainly enjoyed a lot of that comedy my entire life people making fun of me you know (laughs) making fun of all people for the way we talk and behave and yes it was all stereotypes and looking back i'm sure there were a lot of people who felt hurt by it who didn't say anything because the the world didn't allow you to say you know i don't like being defined in that way that doesn't make me feel good about myself so have we lost something that made people happy? Have we lost something natural in the ways we bring each other down? Um, it's funny because I, I have a therapist and he was saying that how they, some people think comedy started was there would be a small tribe and someone would maybe kill more food than someone else. They'd bring back the biggest mm-hmm. kill. And the way they had that person not be too big for their britches was to make fun of them and bring them down. So they were always at the same level as everybody else. And so there's probably something evolutionary about pointing out differences and giving people a hard time. But I definitely understand that there are people who are like, this does me damage. Yeah. So you're saying you're saying the, the, the whole stuttering Chinese waiter community was probably not happy with that bit. Yeah. On some level, I'm sure if you're Chinese or if you have a stutter, if you're at the show, you might suck it up and you get home and you feel bad about yourself. Right. And so on one in one way, you're like, oh, that seems funny. And then you go, oh, that person's devastating. Maybe they don't speak up in conversation because of it. Right. Maybe they feel they've been reduced in some way. And so I definitely get it. It's like when uh, people would make fun of the people who run 7-Elevens. Right. And everyone thought it was harmless. And then people came out and said, well, I don't want you to think that's all I am. Right. You know, that that, that reduction is hurtful and maybe stop some people from getting a job, you know, if you don't see people's humanity. So it's a fascinating moment in comedy in that transition because other people are furious that they can't just do whatever they want to do. Well, especially Um, against the whole free speech backdrop that's going around today. Yeah, Yeah. but for the most part, comedians are making a lot of money and they're selling a lot of tickets. And Mm -hmm. yes, they're making adjustments and maybe they'll find something else to be funny about or a new way to be funny. Mm -hmm. So I try to be like not hysterical about any of them. Mm -hmm. And so as a filmmaker, I, I see you as a pioneer. You push the envelope. You 
you know, there doesn't seem to be in your films, whether ones you direct or produce or write or all the above, like any real boundaries. Like, you know, you'll go for the laugh as long as it serves the narrative and it's not gratuitous and it and it's it really changes the film in a good way. But are there areas that are off the table for you? Like, uh, is there stuff, material you just won't write into a script because it's off limits? Well, I always think, you can say anything if it's in service of the story and if the story uh, is good-hearted. I want the point of the movie to be uh, you know, a way to talk about the ways that we evolve. That's what interests me, is it's hard to be a person and how do people learn things? How do, how, you know, like John Cassavetti has always said, all movies are about obstacles to love. And that's what I'm trying to, to write about, the ways that we're immature and screwed up and mm-hmm. the mistakes that we make. And hopefully we grow up a little bit. I feel like everything I do is a coming-of-age story because, you know, I'm friends with Norman Lear. He'll talk to me about things that happened when he was 10 that still bother him, and he's 100. So we're always growing up. And in stories like that, people are immature. People hurt each other. People say mean things. And I think you can do it in a story if it's to support your point and to show a truth in the way people honestly behave. Well, you just made a, a great reference. Uh, it excited my crew here in this. They love Norman Lear. They want me to get Norman Lear on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, Norman Lear, perfect example. Like, could he make All in the Family again? Could he do that today? Could he say the things? Could could there be an Archie Bunker today? Well, we've had South Park for 25 years. So in a way, we have had it. I think... But is that, that's is animated. And that kind of feels like, yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's a cartoon. It's not real people. We're not seeing a real guy in his living room talking about the shit Archie Bunker did. I don't yeah, know. Well, it, it's a business question, too. It's uh, what can you do on network television? What can you do on, on streaming? Is there anyone good enough to write something that brilliantly? Uh, you know, if you can pull it off creatively, things tend to to get through. So I don't know. When he did it, he had to fight really hard, and they didn't want to air it. And it took years from the time he did the first pilot hmm. to it airing. Yeah. And even on the first night, they had to put up a graphic uh, warning people about the language and the ideas in the show before the show ran. So it was a real fight for him. But I I do think that there is a type of uh, of uh, censorship that happens from the writer, that those things don't get written just because the writers think they can't get made. And so they don't even try. Right. Because the atmosphere feels a little scary. Yeah. You've clearly worked with some of the most uh, amazing people, the most amazing comedic actors of our generation. You also have a real skill for casting people who we don't know, you know, uh, Christopher Mintz Plass, you know, who just literally stole the film as McLovin and Superbad. And uh, when you're casting someone like that, A, do you know that could be a breakout role and make somebody hugely popular? And what do you look for in an unknown when you're casting like that? I don't think we ever think about it in terms of will this be a breakout or will someone become famous off of it? We just think it's funny. <laughs> so when Seth and uh, Evan Goldberg wrote Superbad, that was always the part that made us laugh <laughs> in the script. 
And then the question was, can you ever get someone as funny as it is on the written page? Mm-hmm. And our casting director, Allison Jones, put leaflets out at some high schools and found Chris wow. uh, before he even had an agent. He was just a high school student. And he came in and read with Jonah. And he was so funny. And he gave Jonah a really hard time. He was improvising and being really mean and insulting. And afterwards, Jonah was like, I don't like that guy. And I said, that's exactly why we have to hire him. Because he he makes you funnier because you're genuinely annoyed by him. And then, of course, he fell in love with Chris. And Chris is the nicest guy and has had an incredible career, which is also very satisfying to see that that wasn't a one-off performance. That he is a great actor. No, he was a great find. I mean, it's just hard to imagine anyone else in that role. Yeah, but that takes a great casting director and and Greg Matola, the director, and Seth and Evan, and our Mm -hmm. producer, Sean. I mean, there was a a whole group of people watching all these casting tapes because they also hired Emma Stone in that movie. Right. Arthur McIsaacs was incredible Mm -hmm. in it. And and, um, a lot of it was, you know, sometimes it's just like a moment where things are just working. And everyone is in sync and everyone is finding the same things funny and servicing each other. And Mm -hmm. that was definitely one of those special moments. Let's talk about Anchorman for a second. I know people always ask you about like, oh, my God, those guys were so funny. You probably just laughed all the time, blah, blah, blah. But I want the dirt. I want to know. uh, (laughs) I want to hear about the drama, the fighting, the backstabbing. You know, like how how often did you guys go running into your trailer crying because like Rudd was being a dick or Will Ferrell was like stealing somebody's lunch? Tell us like the stuff you've never spoken about before. That's funny. Is there unspoken Anchorman (laughs) drama? I mean, the real drama of Anchorman was Will Ferrell and Adam McKay wrote that movie and no one would make it for a long time. There was a version of it before I came on as a producer where it was about a group of uh, Anchorman on a, they were on a jet going to an Anchorman convention and the plane clipped wings with a FedEx jet and it, they crashed into the side of a mountain and it became like the movie Alive with all these <laughs> anchor men trying to survive on the side of a mountain. And periodically, the cargo from the FedEx uh, truck uh, plane, which was monkeys, live monkeys and throwing stars, you know, would attack <laughs> them. So monkeys would just randomly start throwing throwing stars at them. And it was really funny, but so crazy. And it took a long time for them to figure out a version of this because it was all hilarious it, it all could have worked the monkeys on the side of the mountain would have genius worked. genius uh, but it took a it took a while to get the movie greenlit uh and then as one might yeah, imagine the rest of it was fun mm-hmm. yeah, then it was and then it was funny and it was every day each guy and christina applegate they would find things and they were you know, it, it was a strange moment where everyone was just crushing it every day. We were laughing so hard every day. And when they did Anchorman 2, it was it was the same thing. It, that's just a, a magical group of people when you put them right. together. Clearly. I, I know a lot of people always ask you, like, what's your favorite Judd Apatow film? But I, I want to know what Judd Apatow film you think really sucked. Like, which one would you just take and just go in the back, open the garbage thing, and just (laughs) throw that away forever. Well, you never think that way about anything just because you work so hard 
uh, on every detail. And you never know what's going to work because everything in comedy is an experiment. Right. So things that people find so funny, you really don't know if it's going to work. I remember in Knocked Up, we thought, oh, it'd be funny if there's an earthquake and Jason, Jason Siegel runs outside naked and Seth grabs his bong but doesn't <laughs> check on Catherine Eigel to see if she's okay. And then we would cut to the road and you would see them all lined up on the road at, the way you do after an earthquake when you try to get out of the house. And you and you think, I, I guess that'll be funny because it's everyone outside and Jason's naked, covering himself with one hand. And then you show it to an audience and they laugh and you go, okay, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't crazy. <laughs> that, you know, that, and that's really what making a comedy is. is you, you, you do the best you can. It's all in your head if something's funny. It's like wondering if a song would make someone cry. Like you write a song and you think, I think it'll make them cry here. But then you have to play it for someone and a lot of the time they just stare at you and they don't cry. Yeah. Well, you don't and have the immediate, with making a film, jokes. you don't have the immediacy of an audience. Like you do stand up, you think something's funny, you present it to them, you're going to know in five seconds whether it's funny or not. When you make a film, you write stuff, you put a script together, you shoot it for however long. Until it's in a theater and people are watching it, you, you, you know, you don't know, right? I mean, it's a, it's a big no, leap of faith to years. do that. Yeah. Oh, it's years. It's years. And then you show it to people. I remember when we showed the 40-year-old virgin for the first time. And at the end, they just break out into this dance to let the sunshine in from hair. And I didn't know if it was going to be funny or not. And then suddenly they break into this dance. The place explodes. I mean, they just <laughs> lost their minds laughing and then laughed really hard through the whole dance. And those are the moments uh, that you remember forever. Because sometimes you have those moments and it is dead silence. I've lived through that as well where you have a joke and you love it and then suddenly silence and you're like oh no they don't like that uh yeah i mean that must i guess anybody who puts anything out in the world i guess worries about you know when people see it watch it hear it read it listen to it whatever is are they gonna feel the way feel about it the way i do but i just want to say for the record i'm gonna answer my own question there's there's no jet apatel movies that suck so just wanted to get that out there so you know, I I feel like every single one of them, you'd be happy if you watched them if you had the flu, COVID, not even COVID, just any mild sickness. Say you just had dental surgery. If you were home alone and you had to kill two hours, I feel like for all of them, you'd be like, yeah, that was worth watching. I was just in uh, Mexico for my son's wedding. Came back, had Montezuma's Revenge. I was really shitting my brains out for a week, and I I could have just <laughs> gone through the whole Apatow catalog. I uh, now that it you mentioned that. It uh, it would have coats, it, it, it coats and soothes. So the last question I want to ask you is, before we shift to politics real quick, is who's your favorite stand-up? Who do you think is the best stand-up of all time? And and, and don't say Mal Z. Lawrence, because that's my that's choice. That's a good question. Who is my favorite stand-up of all time? I have to say Steve Martin, because mm. when, I was a, when I was a kid, he made me laugh really hard. I mean, there's a lot of great comedians uh, and so many are doing you know, remarkable work. But what I always get to is, can anyone really make me laugh? Not mm -hmm. just go, hmm, that was a good joke. Oh, I appreciate that joke. Maria Bamford it might be my favorite comedian right now uh, because she just makes me laugh and she surprises me and hmm. does weird things. And, 
uh, you know, has amazing insights with those voices and characters. But when I was young, I used to listen to those Steve Martin records and just dare I say, bust the gut. I, and I'd listen to him with my family and we would listen in the car. He was just, just so silly. So much joy. Yeah, he was. He brought silliness that no one else did. You know, Adrian loved Steve Martin. She, the jerk, and especially the scene oh, yeah. where he's like, there. You know, she broke up with him, and he's like, oh, I don't need anything except this, and yes. he just like walks around the house, take a, just yeah. this lamp. That's all I need. Like, yeah. if Adrian were here today, she'd tell you that's like the, probably the funniest piece of comedy in the history of comedy, and no one else could do that because. Most comedians aren't really silly. They're funny. They can be biting. They can be political. Yes. But they're not silly. Silly is a very special thing. Adrian was very silly, and uh, a lot of people love silly. But where do you get where do you get silly today? If you want to go look at a uh, go see a, a show of a, of a well known comedian, who's who's silly today? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very good uh, question. There's a there's a, a comedian that I love, uh, Ryan Asher, and uh, you know, there's a, a great Instagram. Reen machine, R E E N, and uh, man, she has some hilarious. I will check that out. Up there, that are that are silly. Where there is a place for it, especially in the world right now, right? Where uh, people they you know, they want insightful comedy and personal comedy, but we also need funny, crazy, lunatic stuff that gives us a break. You know. When someone gets you and you lose your mind laughing, there's nothing better than that. Right. Well, that's a good segue to uh, where we are today, politics. Um, you're very active on Twitter. You you make your frustration, your anger, your positions, uh, some with humor, uh, very well known through tweets and retweets. Your righteous indignation is evident. Uh, this week you tweeted... Carrie Lake, the crackpot out in Arizona. She looked like she was making a Match.com ad because of her stylized uh, mm -hmm. filter. But then after the uh, the CPAC, Culticon as I call it, uh, you tweeted, so many people in this country are hateful and dumb. The banality of evil. Watch this and know it is a much larger portion of this country than we could ever imagine. You're obviously a prominent filmmaker, but is Twitter like a satisfying, important, maybe even necessary outlet for you as a as an american citizen i'm not sure i definitely have uh tried to express myself and felt especially during the trump administration it was important that people stood up and spoke out against what was happening i don't know how effective it is i'm not sure beyond getting it out and me feeling a little better if it reaches anyone that doesn't agree with me i don't know if it changes any minds there are certainly ideas that need to be communicated. I, I'm very concerned that there are a lot of people who want our country to be a theocracy, and that's bubbling up and becoming uh, explicit in a way in which it was hidden before. Mm -hmm. There are people, they don't want separation of church and state, and they don't care what your religion is. They want it to be their religion and their values. Right. And now we, we see them. They're coming out, and, and they're saying it publicly, and I think people really need to pay attention to it. That's what the... Roe versus Wade is about, that's what this fight that's probably going to happen about contraception and gay marriage and all the issues related to that. There are people that want you to live by their values. And our country was created to fight against that. So places like Twitter are important because we do need people to notice that because I'm sure there's a lot of Republicans and maybe they're just Republicans because they care about taxes or big military 
maybe they don't want that. Maybe they don't realize what they're going to lose. Maybe women in their families are going to have problems in their pregnancies and suddenly they can't get health care that they need right. to survive. Well, well, Kansas proved that. The Kansas referendum proved that. We'll see how far it goes because I think it's going to get much worse. It's, it's a massive overreach. It's not what the country wants. And these people are trying to take over the country. They really don't care that they don't have most of the country on their side in terms of these positions. Mm-hmm. They're religious people who are trying to do what they think is God's will. I mean, if you look up videos of Mike Pompeo and Flynn, this is what these people believe. That's why they were okay with Donald Trump, because he was a sinner who helped them achieve some of their goals, and they were willing to tolerate him Mm -hmm. because it got them closer to achieving some of this. And I think it's something to be very nervous about yeah well in your in your carlin film i mean carlin's material his bits about religion are not only hilarious but they're literally they demonstrate the kind of concern we should all have that that you just spoke of i know where what i was thinking when i saw the flash come across the screen that the fbi uh i was gonna say raid i don't like can we call it a raid i mean it sounds like it was a raid (laughs) like someone came into your house a raid they uh they they went to his house you know, with uh, took his shit, you know, you know. Court order to take something <laughs> with them. I, I mean, is that a raid? If they're not knocking the door down while he's in his underwear and arresting him, they're that, they're uh, then then you know, we would be serving raiding. a court order. Um, yes. So all right, so we, we call it a search. I, I know what I was thinking. What we what what the nanosecond you saw that his house was being searched by the FBI, what ran through your mind? I never think that it will come to much because he's just found a way to slip around and everything. And one would hope uh, that, you know, they get what they need, but it seems like he's had enough time to put his documents in a better hiding place. If everything's just sitting in his closet, that would be weird. I guess maybe not out of character. Well, he hit so it we in the hope s- that the justice he hit then he he hit it in the safe because no one would ever look the FBI would never yeah. think to look in the safe. I mean, I guess he could be arrogant enough to think they'll never search my my home, but you know the Justice uh, Department is supposed to treat everyone the same, and certainly that hasn't happened with all of these people. So obviously, on the right, they're like, this is the craziest injustice. I didn't know if I did these things, you would raid my house. I would get indicted. Uh, it doesn't really make much sense that you can commit all these crimes and get out of it. Michael Cohen went to jail for the same thing Trump did, and there's no discussion of him getting in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like that's a real scary double standard. And... We don't know what's going on behind the scenes for the last few months in terms of, you know, the FBI and Trump negotiating to give up stuff that they knew was there. And then, you know, so there's so much that it's hard to really make a judgment because there's so much we don't know, you know, that maybe leads to the things we do see on the news, you know. Well, there's a lot there's a lot going on. You know, like what what could he have at his home? Why would he want it at his home? So are we assuming there's no other copy anywhere? Is it like a letter from 
Putin? Is it uh, a, a sale of arms we don't know about? I mean, I, if you just go, what what are you taking home that no one else has? But a you copy see, now of? you're now you're being rational, which is what we tend to do. It's like, why would he want us to inject bleach? Right? There's no mm-hmm. logical, rational answer. So you're you're asking as Judd Apatow. You're saying if I was this, this guy, why would I want this shit in my house? His mind works yeah. like we can't even begin to understand his pathology, which is why so much of this is so complicated because he's not like anyone else. But uh, it sounds like you don't think he's going to get indicted. I, I I think anything's possible, but it's uh, it seems necessary that whatever crimes he committed, that he should you know he he, he should have to face justice on. I I I know everyone's worried about people flipping out and the country uh, having a civil war over it. But if you don't uh, enforce the law, what is the point of having the law? And let, let's see what it is. I, I mean, you know, we're talking about fake electors and calling up people saying, go find votes. You know, when you wait several hours while the Capitol is overrun, you know, that's, that's an act of violence in itself. Is there, is there uh, any comedy in that? That we've witnessed the I mean, last six is, years. There, I mean, there is comedy. A lot of people have done incredible comedy uh, uh, about Trump. Does it serve any uh, purpose that helps solve anything? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe if you're young. I always think if I'm 15 and I watch Anthony Atumiak do Trump or, you know, see certain sketches or watch Stephen Colbert, maybe it would help me form my values and ideals. I don't know if a 30-year-old is changing their opinion based on a great comedy routine. So it sounds like we, we're probably not going to see a, a Judd Apatow film called Traitor Man uh, starring Alec Baldwin about uh, the last six years. I, I'd love I don't to think see I'm that. Gonna, I'm, I'm going I'm to uh, you know, jump into that type of satire, but other people will, and people will do it well. And it's good that someone tries to turn it into some sort of art or, or storytelling. But you know, Trump is just so, such a bizarre person that it's never satisfying because he's, in a lot of ways, unknowable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's due to complexity or shallowness. Both. But he it, he's definitely a, some sort of freak of nature, and that's why people remain fascinated mm-hmm. by him. What do, you, what do you think is going to happen in November? One would hope that it, it's a surprise that in the midterms uh, in the Senate and in Congress and hopefully in local state houses that the Democrats do much better than we would have thought. That should be the case anyway, even if this didn't happen with Roe versus Wade. Everyone should be voting. Right. Uh, you know, we see what happens. I mean, if we lose a few more Supreme Court justices, who knows what could happen in this country? Already, it, it, it's all out of people's hands. So, I'm always of, of of the mind that all the work is in getting young people to vote and mm-hmm. disinterested people to vote because a, an eight or ten percent change uh, will completely uh, change the entire country. And if I was a young person, I certainly wouldn't be sleeping through these elections. Yeah. Well, I think uh, again, Kansas. I think is going to be an, is is going is going to, to me, is a bellwether of what's what's going to come. I think the the row overturning of Roe really woke a lot of people up. Uh, no pun intended. Um, 
Before I let you go, I got one last question, which I like to ask everybody. Uh, I love music. I think music is a window into the soul. So I want to know who is your top five artists all time? That is rough. I'm, I'm terrible on top fives, but I'll give you five knowing that there's 35 more. <laughs> I'll tell you who I, I'll tell you who I listen to the most. Maybe that. I listen to a lot of Fiona Apple. Oh, okay. I listen to a lot of Yacht Rock. That's not an artist, but I'm not going to deny that it brings me joy. Mm -hmm. I listen to The Who a lot and Pearl mm -hmm. Jam and Wilco. Uh, I like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, mm -hmm. Karen O. Um, Taylor I was just listening to Barbara I love, yeah, I love Taylor Swift. Uh, I like uh, um, Olivia Rodrigo. I like, I just watched the Billie Eilish documentary the other day, mm -hmm. which I thought was fantastic. Do your daughters uh, have influence on all this at all? Well, they listen to it constantly. So I definitely, you know, spent the last 15 years letting them control the radio. But uh, there's so many great artists that, that write from a very personal place. And that's all I care about. Um, so I don't know. I guess it's endless. Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard Dan. question, you know, to answer. I went to see Steely Dan the other night. I mean, that's who I am, and had the greatest time. So it is funny though. There's so much new music. You don't. You always feel like you're being left behind, and you always feel like you're getting old because even if you're trying to listen to the new thing. Oh, there's so much of it. It's like, and how am I going to have time for it if I'm still listening to Steely Dan? It's like when you watch the Grammys, especially with your kids, and you feel like you're 200 years old because you literally like <laughs> no no one on the show. Before we go, uh, I do want to give you a chance to mention. Uh, I think a couple weeks ago, when we first started talking, you uh, said you you were down south shooting a film. Like, what do you want? What are you working on? Oh, I'm producing a movie uh, with um, three gentlemen from Saturday Night Live. They have a group called Please Don't Destroy. And they uh, did a lot of the great digital shorts this year. Oh, those yeah. things are amazing. The ones where they in the dressing room stuff, those guys? Yeah, and then oh. the writer's room, yeah. And so we're working on that now. And then I have a movie called Bros coming mm -hmm. out that I produced that Nick Stoller Billy directed Eichner. and co-wrote with Billy Eichner. Mm -hmm. That comes out at the end of September, uh, which I think is really funny, and I'm excited for people mm -hmm. to see that. And then the George Carlin doc is on HBO Max, and all sorts of stuff is on HBO Max. If you're bored, if you're sitting <laughs> home bored, there's... All the old George Conn specials there. The Larry Sanders show mm -hmm. is on there. The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. I, I have so much to plug because it's it's just all sitting there. We have, we have nothing but time, so. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, you're like, should I remind people the bubble is on Netflix? Please. Should I remind people that Please. love Freaks, is on Freaks Netflix? Freaks and geeks. And, you know, we can go on and on and on. <laughs> I got an Avid Brothers documentary called May It Last on HBO. I know it's funny because even Freaks and Geeks, People find it now, and it's like we made it this year. Like they don't, they don't care that it was made in 1999, 2000. Like to like a young person, we just finished it, and so you have to remind people like where this stuff lives. Well, you certainly have an amazing career. I'm a huge fan. I'm sure there are tens of millions of others that that feel the same. I crack up nonstop when I watch your stuff, and I, I look forward to watching all the stuff you just mentioned. Uh, people go out and watch the Carlin documentary. Whether you know George Carlin's work or not, uh, it's an incredible window into a very complicated but brilliant comedic genius. And I thank you for 
coming on and doing this with me. You are, you're, you're a great guest. Well, thank you. When are you making another documentary? That's, wow, that's a good question. I have, I have a couple of ideas that uh, I'm, I'm going to pitch. So, you know, you know how that goes. <laughs> but similar, you know, just uh, people stories. I think there are yes. films that do bring us into someone's life and, and bring them back to life for us. That's kind of my jam, as the kids would say. So. Well, I, I thought your documentary was very was very special. I think you uh, made something really beautiful that was very moving, but also you're very gifted as a documentarian, and I, I hope you get the chance to make uh, many more. Jesus, I'm going to literally pick myself off the floor after that. Uh, coming from you, that's awesome. So thank you, Judd. I appreciate that. I appreciate you coming on, and I uh, hope we'll do this again. Great. All right. Take care. Be well. Take care. So there you have it, episode 12 in the can. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to remind everyone, early voting continues through Sunday, the 21st. That's uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, the special election. Get out there and vote for Pat Ryan. Very important we keep this seat in New York 19. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Leave us a message at 845-307-7446 or email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Andy Ostroyd. Thank you, Maddie Rosenberg, Jan Hamoud, Cricket Langell, Andy Hollander. And once again, a big thank you to our guest, Judd Apatow. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>